Well, friends, uh, when my children were younger, there were some commands that my wife and I issued to them that didn't go down too well. Uh, if we issued the command, for example, like, eat your vegetables, we would be met, met by groans, followed by an attempt to find a loophole around the command. Did you mean eat all of my vegetables or some of my vegetables? Can I eat just the potatoes, but not the broccoli? However, there were other commands that we issued, which were not met with such groaning, but were met with sheer delight. The command, we're going to the park to ride our bikes, uh, for example, was not met with begrudging duty, but with, but with shrieks of delight. Now, uh, last week, we saw that the psalmist's attitude towards the law of God, uh, including his commandments, was um, one of similar delight. Uh, for example, in Psalm 19, uh, verse 10, the psalmist speaks of God's law and says these words. He says, more to be desired are they, that is the law, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Have you ever viewed God's law like that? How is it that we can delight in God's law in similar ways? Uh, well, this morning we are looking uh, at the more detailed laws, uh, as Chris mentioned, that follow the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. Uh, it stretches from chapter 20, verse 22, uh, all the way through to chapter 23, uh, verse 32. And uh, this section of Exodus is often called the Book of the Covenant, because uh, that's what Moses calls them later in chapter 24, verse 7, if you want to look that up later. Now, of course, uh, we won't be able to look at all these laws in great detail this morning. But uh, if you have a glance uh, through them quickly, uh, you can see that they are mostly case law because uh, most of them are conditional uh, in some way. Uh, usually they start with the word when or if. You know, when this happens, then you should do this. Uh, if that happens, then you should do that. Uh, in this sense, uh, these laws uh, are different to the Ten Commandments. Uh, the laws you see in the Ten Commandments uh, are, are a little bit more unconditional, aren't they? Uh, they're what are known as apodictic laws. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. Uh, you shall not commit adultery, for example. They express legal conditions in unconditional ways. And so it seems that the book of the covenant that follows the Ten Commandments uh, is largely case law that seeks to apply the Ten Commandments uh, to different situations that the newly emerging nation of Israel uh, might face. Now, I don't know what you thought when you first read these laws, but I wouldn't be surprised if you wondered, you know, what on earth is God uh, trying to teach me from these laws? Uh, what is its relevance uh, to me as a New Testament Christian? Uh, there are certain difficulties in, in reading uh, and understanding these laws for ourselves, isn't there? 
Uh, what are some of those difficulties? Well, first of all, many of these laws seem culturally distant or removed from us. For example, if you have your Bibles there with you, uh, have a look at chapter 21, verse 33. Chapter 21, verse 33. Uh, it says, When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Uh, I don't know whether any of you own an ox or a donkey, and this has happened to you uh, in the past. Uh, if it has, uh, then please let me know about it. I'd, I'd really love to know. But it does seem uh, a little bit distant, doesn't it? It seems to reflect a different culture, uh, perhaps uh, an agrarian culture of a different time and place, which may make it seem very foreign to our ears. Secondly, uh, these laws are difficult to classify. It does seem, doesn't it, that these laws are somehow grouped um, and cover different areas of life. Uh, so uh, I had a, a go at grouping these laws, and uh, this is what I came up with. Uh, you might like to do this uh, uh, exercise in your own time. But uh, in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, uh, the, the laws seem to have something to do with the worship of Israel. Uh, 21, 1 to 11, uh, the laws are about how to treat slaves. Uh, 21, 12 to 32, it's about personal injury, uh, followed by injury to property. And then another section that speaks about worship again, uh, how to treat the needy follows that. Uh, another section that speaks about worship and then uh, justice, religious days and festivals and worship. Now, uh, that may not be entirely accurate. And uh, you do have some laws that don't seem to fit into these categories too neatly. But uh, it does seem that these laws are grouped in some way. However, the difficulty is in making sense of how they are grouped together. Uh, why uh, are the treatment of slaves, for example, the ones that come first? Uh, are these different groupings ranked in any kind of importance? Uh, why are there multiple sections that deal with worship? Uh, I think at the very least, we can say that all these different areas of life that are covered by these laws are kind of all jumbled up and mixed together like a multicolored jumper knitted from different colored yarns. It seems that when it comes to these laws, there is no clear separation between the religious life of Israel and the ordinary life of Israel. In other words, God cares about how his people live in every area of life. Uh, the worship of God is not to be confined simply to the area of religious ritual, but in every area of life, whether it be in the home or out in the fields at work or in personal dealings with people, uh, all of life uh, God cares about, uh, all of life seems to be worship uh, is the point. If you remember, the constant refrain in the first half of Exodus has been, let my people go that they may worship me. 
uh, here God is defining what uh, worship is to look like. Uh, worship is not to be compartmentalized, for God cares about uh, your whole life. And all of life is the arena in which we worship God. Uh, finally, figuring out how we are meant to understand these laws is difficult because some of them are just flat out strange. For example, uh, chapter 21, verse 15. Chapter 21, verse 15 says, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. I wonder whether there are any children here listening to that. It, it just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Uh, or chapter 22, verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. I mean, what is that all about? Or chapter 23, verse 19. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What, what are we to make of these laws? Um, some of them, I think, can leave us scratching our heads. Well, uh, one common answer that uh, Bible readers of the past have given in trying to make sense of how all these Old Testament laws apply to Christians today is to divide them up into civil, ceremonial and moral laws. Uh, you might be familiar with this kind of distinction, which comes largely from the, the teaching of John Calvin, who was one of the, the great reformers of the 16th century. Uh, civil laws, according to Calvin, uh, are laws regulating the way society is organised. Ceremonial laws are laws regulating the formal worship of the people of Israel. And moral laws are laws which are relevant to the morality of people everywhere. And so in the book of Exodus, for example, uh, you can roughly say that the civil laws are uh, represented by the Book of the Covenant, which is the section that we're looking at this morning, because many of these laws seem to regulate the structures of society. Ceremonial laws are represented by those laws which uh, we will have a look at in following weeks um, concerning the tabernacle and the priesthood in Israel. And the moral laws are represented by the Ten Commandments. So the beauty of dividing up the laws in this way is that you can say, well, the, the civil laws don't really apply to us as New Testament Christians anymore because the kind of society we live in now is very different to Israelite society back then and so no longer have any uh, meaning. Uh, you can say that ceremonial laws are no longer binding on us as New Testament Christians because, well, Jesus has fulfilled those laws. You know, Jesus is now our tabernacle or temple, the place where we meet God himself. Jesus is our high priest who offered the once-for-all sacrifice of himself so that our sins might be atoned for and we might be welcomed into uh, God's eternal rest. But the moral laws in the Ten Commandments, well, they're the ones that continue to apply to us because God intended for these laws to endure for all time. Now, uh, I'm very well aware that that's a very simple description of Calvin's teaching, and uh, we don't have time to look into all the nuances and, and the reasoning behind them, uh, which are very important. 
But what we can say is that one of the attractive things about this way of looking at Old Testament laws is that it is simple and it is understandable and it's easily taught to others. However, the difficulty is that when you get down to the nitty gritty detail of trying to divide up these laws into civil, ceremonial and moral categories, it's not that easy to do in many cases. Uh, so for example, is the Sabbath law a ceremonial law or a moral law? If it's a ceremonial law, then what's it doing in the Ten Commandments? If it's a moral law, then what's it doing in the, the Book of the Covenant, which uh, you, you see uh, later in the Book of the Covenant? Or uh, have a look at uh, chapter 22, verse 25. Chapter 22, verse 25, uh, for example, which says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Now, is that a civil law or is that a moral law? Uh, some time ago, uh, we found out that a, a specialist doctor uh, that my uh, daughter was seeing was reported to the medical tribunal. Uh, it turns out that uh, a single mother in her desperation asked this doctor to treat her daughter. But because uh, she didn't have very much money, uh, he said that he would loan her the money and uh, he could pay him back. But what he actually ended up doing is he charged this, uh, this widow exorbitant amounts of interest. And so this guy who drove the best European cars and went on overseas uh, trips and lived in luxury uh, ended up taking advantage of this particular widow. Something like this feels very much like a moral issue, doesn't it? But why does a similar law that tries to prevent things like this live in a part of Exodus that is generally considered to be civil law? Now, you see, it's very hard to know which basket to put each Old Testament law in, isn't it? When we have to classify them into these sort of categories. Uh, the Bible itself doesn't certainly seem to operate in this way. And so if the division of Old Testament laws into civil, ceremonial and moral categories is uh, difficult and is not really the way to understand them uh, in the Bible, then what is the way forward for us? Well, uh, this morning, friends, uh, I want to suggest that the way forward for us is to see the Old Testament laws as wisdom from God, to see them as wisdom from God. In other words, the Old Testament laws are not simply commands and rules and regulations that need to be dutifully obeyed, but they are teaching and instruction and guidance from a wise God to be received with delight as a son would receive wisdom from his father. Now, you can see that these Old Testament laws have the character of wisdom in the book of Exodus itself. Uh, one of the intriguing ways you see this is in the Ten Commandments. For the Ten Commandments are addressed to Israel in the second person singular. 
you shall have no other gods before me you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery the you there is in the singular rather than the plural it's impossible to see that in our english translations because um, in english uh, we don't use the word use for example um, we use the word you for both singular and plural but in the hebrew it's possible to to tell that this is in the singular. Now, that's, that's a very interesting sort of detail, isn't it? Because in the Ten Commandments, it, it's the entire nation of Israel that is being addressed. So why would it be expressed in the singular rather than the plural? Well, I don't know whether you remember, but way back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, the nation of Israel is described as God's son. Uh, in that passage, God instructs Moses to say to Pharaoh uh, these particular words. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve or worship me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And so when God gives the, the Ten Commandments and the detailed laws at Mount Sinai, um, I think what he's doing it is, uh, I think what he's doing is he's, he's saying these words as a wise father, teaching and instructing and guiding his son so that his son, the nation of Israel, will know how to live the good life in the world that God has created for them. Uh, that's why Israel could conceive of how the law might be a source of delight rather than a begrudging duty. Further, you can see this character of the law as wisdom later on in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Uh, you might remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses repeats the law to the second generation of Israel. And uh, listens to how he describes the law as wisdom. Uh, he says these words. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will surely say, will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? However, the sorry story of the people of Israel was their tragic inability to receive the law as wisdom from God. Rather than receiving this law as God's wisdom so that they loved God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and so they loved their neighbour as themselves, their lives were rather marked by idolatry and injustice and wickedness, just like the nations around them. 
So you might know that eventually the nation of Israel tragically, sadly, suffered the judgment of God with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people into a foreign land. Well, you see, the fault is not with the law, but with the human heart that resists loving God with all my heart and all my mind and strength and soul and loving neighbor as myself. Whilst the law can define something of morality, it can never really change the human heart. Uh, that was the real problem. Uh, some of you might know that uh, I used to be a, a tax consultant and uh, gave uh, legal advice on tax matters to uh, big corporates or companies. It was a very complicated area of law to work in because the tax law is actually very large. Uh, when I worked in, in this area almost 20 years ago now, the tax legislation was four volumes, uh, each volume being as thick as a brick and growing larger each year. Why is the tax legislation so long? Well, it's because people keep on trying to find loopholes in the law. You see, if everyone paid their fair share of tax in order for the government to be able to distribute wealth uh, to the more needy in society, then we wouldn't have a need for such long legislation. But you see, because of greed, uh, people want to keep the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. So they find loopholes. People steal, but they do it legally. For you see, the law never really changes the human heart, you see. Uh, that's why in the Old Testament, prophets like the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed the good news that one day God would make a new covenant with his people and God himself would put the law within the hearts of his people so that they would obey God from the heart. Rather than simply keeping the letter of the law, they will know the spirit of the law, the intention of the law, so that they might do even more than what the law commanded. Uh, when you get to the New Testament, what you see is the stunning reality that where Israel failed as God's son, in keeping the law of God, there is one son who succeeded, namely Jesus. For Jesus always delighted in God's law. Jesus was the only one who loved God with all his heart and mind and soul and strength. He was the only one who loved his neighbor as himself so that he treated those around him with justice and compassion and mercy. Indeed, he loved God and he loved his neighbor to such a degree that as God's son, he was willing to go to the cross to die for those who had failed in loving God and loving neighbor and who ultimately deserved God's judgment and wrath. In other words, friends, he went to the cross for people like you and me who fail to love God and fail to love neighbor. He did it to pay the penalty that we deserved for not living as God intended. And uh, here's the astonishingly good news. Uh, if you and I 
put our trust in this Jesus and his death on the cross for us, then we are promised forgiveness for the way we have treated God for the way we've treated others and we are welcomed into God's family as his sons, the ones who will inherit his kingdom and eternal life. Further, we are given the spirit of God himself who lives in us and helps us to internalise the law so that we might truly understand the intention of the law and delight in it and obey it from the heart. So what do we do with the Old Testament law now? Well, the Old Testament law is now no longer binding on those who belong to Jesus because we do not find salvation in the law, but rather we find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you don't find the New Testament writers quoting the detailed Old Testament laws very much. But, uh, you know, there are a few sort of allusions to them here and there you know, scattered around like salt and pepper. It's because, as the Apostle Paul says a number of times in the New Testament, that we are the people who are not under the law, not under the Old Testament law. However, that doesn't mean that Christians are free to live however we want. Rather, we are now bound to live under the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, This is described in the New Testament as living under the the law of Christ or the law of the spirit of life or the law of freedom. And the way to live under Christ is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love neighbour as ourselves in the way that God intended. But this doesn't mean that the Old Testament law ceases to have any relevance for us. For the Old Testament law now comes to us Uh, as wisdom from God that teaches us something of what it might look like to love God and our neighbour, but in a way that goes beyond the strict obedience of the law. Uh, You can see that the Old Testament law has this character of wisdom in our New Testament passage this morning. I wonder whether you picked up on that. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, when Paul says all scripture, uh, he means uh, the whole Old Testament, including the law. But notice that this Old Testament law is useful for teaching and for rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. In the Bible, these are all wisdom words that you find in the wisdom literature like the Psalms and the Proverbs. They are all things that a wise father would say to his son. And so through the Old Testament laws, God our Father teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains us as his sons so that we might go even beyond the law in loving God and our neighbour. How might this work? Well, it will be impossible for us to go through every single law in the Book of the Covenant this morning. Uh, That 
actually uh, will take more than a lifetime. And I hope uh, we can do that uh, through our lives as we study the law. But uh, have a look with me, for example, at Exodus 22, verses 21 to 27. Exodus 22, uh, 21 to 27. If you scan your eyes down through those verses, you can see there that these are all laws that speak of how Israel is to treat the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless. Now, we might gloss over this, but the principle here is that the strong are to look after the weak because God in his strength looked after the nation of Israel in their weakness when they were slaves in Egypt. Oh, what a wonderful uh, principle. But when you get to the New Testament, whilst this particular law is not uh, mentioned, uh, this theme is certainly there, isn't it? For in Jesus, we have a mighty God who died for us while we were weak as sinners. And so as people who belong to Jesus, we are also to look after the weak among us. Uh, the strong in conscience, for example, are to, are to serve those who are weak in conscience. The strong and healthy are to care and pray for the weak and the sick. The strong and wealthy are to share with those who are weak and needy. Uh, this is not simply sticking to the letter of the law, but in the light of the gospel, it is uh, going beyond the law, expanding uh, so, so much more than what the, the law commanded. It's a bit like when you are a child, uh, you are given certain laws or commands or regulations to live by, aren't you? Uh, when you were learning to cross the road, uh, you're probably given the law from your parents about how you are to look to the right and look to the left and look to the right again. But when you became an adult, you no longer need this law. Why? Well, it's because you have internalized uh, what this law is really about. It's about keeping yourself safe from being hit by a car. It's, be, it's about being safe from danger. And so although you might not tell yourself to look to the right and look to the left and look to the right again every time you cross the road, well, you take care in how to cross the road whether it's at the lights or at the crossing or listening for, for cars when it's busy, you express the principle in a way that goes beyond the law. Uh, similarly, if you are a Christian person, you are somebody who is able to internalise the law, to really grasp what the law is about and the principle of the law because you have the work, uh, you have the spirit of God at work in your hearts so that you can understand what God is saying and so that you can uh, understand how you might love God and love neighbour. And so the Christian person is one who is able to delight in God's law for it comes ultimately from a wise father showing his son how to live in a way that is life-affirming and ultimately leads to eternal life itself. I wonder whether you and I um, delight in God's law in this way. Uh, if we are people who 
have put our trust in Jesus and we are the people who have God's spirit living in us, then we have every reason to delight in God's law in this way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, know that we all fall short of your law in many ways and uh, we deserve your condemnation. But Father, we thank you for sending to us your Son who died for us so that we might be forgiven and so that we might inherit eternal life. And we thank you that this has happened not because of our own goodness or righteousness, but because of the work of your Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, we thank you that your Spirit writes the law in our hearts so that we can now obey you, not simply in an external way as mere duty and doing the bare minimum, but from our hearts, delighting in you. Now, please teach us and help us to love one another and those around us who do not know you in ways that go beyond the law. Please help us to live in wise ways that lead to eternal life rather than foolish ways that lead us away from you. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.